0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. On our way in, uh, just a few minutes ago, we sang together, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Evermore his praises sing. Alleluia, alleluia. Praise the everlasting King. What does it mean to call Jesus a king? We often call him savior, sometimes lord, but we don't often refer to Jesus as king. The title king has implications, political implications, because a king is a politician. He is governmental authority and influence. He reigns over a kingdom. We tend to forget the political nature of the Christian faith. Now, I've recently discovered on the wacky and zany world of the internet, um, memes, you know what memes are? These little humorous uh, animated images with little notes on them. And I've discovered uh, memes of both Republican Jesus and Democrat Jesus, okay? Now, Republican Jesus is pictured among some rather sick looking lepers and says, sorry lepers, but you have a pre-existing condition. And a Democrat Jesus sits among a multitude and says things like, don't be a sucker, make taxpayers do your charity for you. I can tell by the, never mind. Uh, um, but no matter how people vote, they are certain that Jesus wouldn't support the ridiculous policies of the other party. But the political, of nature, the political nature of Christianity transcends bipartisan politics. Thanks be to God. Because Jesus was a different kind of king. And his kingdom, as he says to Pilate in our gospel today, is not from this world. So what kind of king is Jesus? And what does his kingship and his kingdom mean for those who follow him? Those are the questions before us today. Now, to talk about Jesus as king, it's really impossible to get the whole picture without rewinding a little bit back in the story, the story of Israel, which is Jesus' story, and to look at the situation there. Now, if you remember uh, Israel, the, 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 the big tragedy that happens in the Old Testament for Israel is that they go into exile. They are conquered by Babylon as a result of their sin and their idolatry and their mingling and with pagan nations, and they are conquered by Babylon, and they go into exile. They are exiled uh, from their land. Most of them are exiled from their land because sin always estranges us from God. Sin always estranges us from God. But despite this period of discipline or punishment, Israel always held on to the hope and the conviction that her God, Yahweh, still reigned and would return to his people. Now, at this time of exile, one of the bigwig prophets, and you've probably heard of him, his name is Isaiah, he was speaking to his people at this time, and one of the things he said to them was this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's this imager of a messenger, a joyful messenger, running into the running into the people who have been exiled from their home and telling them, giving them a message of hope that your God reigns. Someone is going to be coming with good news, the good news of salvation. See, the belief behind all this for the Israelites was that Yahweh himself Their their creator God who called them out of Egypt, Yahweh himself was going to return and reign as a king over his people. But it was hard to know exactly what that would look like and when it would happen. But that was the hope. That was the hope. And so a question lingered for the Israelites who looked at their situation. And maybe it's a question that has actually touched our own hearts and minds. How will God bring his reign over a world devastated by sin, evil, evil? political corruption, violence, and hatred. And then several hundred years later, we get to the New Testament, the days of the New Testament, and the Jews are ruled by the Romans, the grand Roman Empire, and this Jesus character shows up. And he starts talking about the kingdom of God. And so naturally, ears start perking up, and people start paying attention to what he has to say. Now, here's the first thing off Jesus' lips in Mark's gospel. This is from Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus goes out in to begin his public ministry, and the first thing he says publicly is this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, many of you know that the word gospel means... Good news. Very good. I'm proud of you. Uh, The word gospel means good news. Now, now listen again to Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news. But you see, Jesus's message about the kingdom of God was completely counterintuitive to uh, most of his people and their expectations because he's going around and he's Healing, and he's telling people their sins are forgiven. Now, here's what. Listen, you all know the name N.T. Wright. He's kind of like the guy for studies in ancient Judaism and New Testament Christianity, Um, and he says this: the kingdom of God—that this phrase is a slogan whose basic meaning is the hope that Israel's God is going to rule Israel and the whole world, and that Caesar or Herod or anyone else of their ilk is not. So the Jews are listening to Jesus talk about the kingdom of God having arrived and they're saying, um, excuse me, Mr. Jesus, have you not noticed? Caesar is still in power along with his puppet king, Herod, who rules over us and we're paying taxes to Rome. And you're trying to tell us that Yahweh has returned to reign over his people. Jesus, meanwhile, Jesus is going around and telling people to love their enemies and and to pray for their persecutors. He says that God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace and that Yahweh has come not to destroy his enemies, but to reach out and offer them forgiveness. That's Israel's long-awaited good news. God is not only restoring Israel through a new covenant and the forgiveness of sins, he's actually inviting the rest of the world into that kingdom. Now, you have to consider... The typical Jewish perspective of the time. You are living as an oppressed people. There there were some um, archaeological digs recently um, that found some ancient Roman coins from the time of Jesus. And some of the depictions on the coins had things like Roman soldiers standing with their foot on Jewish peasants. Um, Or they were sitting with a Jewish peasant sitting down in chains and the Roman soldier would be standing over them. So just imagine, just imagine if you lived under this kind of oppression and you actually had to use this currency that showed your people being crushed and oppressed by the Romans to pay exorbitant taxes to the empire. Imagine just for a moment the Gentile hatred that would flow through your veins. And this Jesus, this, this Jesus is going about in dining with Gentiles, sinners and, and healing Gentiles and, and telling you to love the people and forgive the people who oppress you. Not to mention Jesus' claims are outrageous. They are outrageous. He claims to forgive sins. He, he speaks as if he has authority over the law. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. He says things like, Before Abraham was, I am. John tells us um, in chapter 5 of his gospel that this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so, the Jewish authorities hand Jesus over to the Romans hoping to have him put to death. And the reason they did that was because the, uh, the Jewish legal body, the Sanhedrin, had had their uh, privileges of putting to people to death revoked by the Roman Empire. And so the Jews hand them over to the Roman authorities in hopes that they will have a trial and execute him. And so that is where we land today in our passage where Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. He is on trial under the Roman authorities, particularly in this little vignette under Pontius Pilate. Now, um, in this passage, see John, if you read through John's gospel, you see that John is interested in kind he of, zo- he likes to zoom in on one in, one-on-one interactions between Jesus and other people to uh, see how people respond to Jesus and whether or not they will actually receive him for who he is. And so this is another example of that. And so Jesus, uh, so John zooms in on this conversation between Jesus and Pilate today. And Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate is genuinely interested if Jesus is some kingly figure for the Jews because he's interested to figure out if Jesus is actually ma- making treasonous claims against Caesar. Is this guy going to be a threat to the to the uh, imperial authorities? That's the question uh, that Pilate is wrestling with. And so he questions Jesus. And Jesus says to him, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? That is, Pilate, are you interested to know what it means for me to be a king? And Pilate is outraged. You can hear it in his voice just by reading it because the question puts him in an uncomfortable position. Anger, it's such a common reaction when someone hits something tender in our hearts. How many of us often react with anger when God stands in front of us and confronts us? Now, I love this scene because you can pick up on the internal struggle that Pilate is experiencing. I think he is truly torn. I think that he feels something in his spirit that there is something about Jesus that he just can't put his finger on, and he's torn. I think that he feels the truth of Jesus, but he continues to suppress it. Now, Pilate gives a violent retort to Jesus' question, and he says, what have you done to make your people so upset that they've handed you over to me? And then Jesus just says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. Why does he reply with this? He's inviting Pilate to see that there is another realm of authority, if you will. Not run by political power and military might, but by the power of God to effect change in the hearts of human beings. But Pilate wants to play it safe. He won't acknowledge the reality Jesus is offering him. And so he keeps the conversation just going at a surface level. So you are a king, he asks, as if to keep himself distracted. And Jesus says, I came into the world to testify to the truth. That is, I came to make known the truth of God, to usher in his kingdom in the lives of men and women who would receive me and make me king of their lives. I came to, I came to expose the kingdom of this world for what it is and to tell the truth about God so that people could be delivered from the darkness of this age. You know what Pilate says? It's not included in our reading for some reason, but here's how the conversation ends. At the very end of what we heard today, Pilate responds with these three words, what is truth? What is truth? See, Pilate's skepticism betrays the fact that he allows a lie to prevail in his heart. The lie that Jesus is just another guy, just another rabble rouser, just another obstacle to be removed, just another disruption to the social order and to the normalcy of Pilate's own life. See, it's a tendency of of, of sinful human hearts to make up lies to evade the reality of Jesus Christ's claim on our lives. Uh, John Webster, he's a late theologian and pastor, he he wrote this and he was talking about um, the passion narratives and the trial of Jesus and how everything was one big orchestrated lie. And he says this, why do we tell lies? We lie to evade reality. We lie because the truth is too painful or too shameful for us to face or because the truth is simply inconvenient and has to be suppressed before it's allowed to disturb us. We invent lies because for whatever reason, we want to invent reality. And the false reality which we invent, the world we make up by our lying, has one great advantage for us. It makes no claims on us. See, Pilate would not let Jesus make a claim on his life. He refused to receive Jesus as the truth-revealing king that he is, and tragically, instead, He sends him away to his death. Now, thanks be to God, the story does not end there. We know how it goes because three days after the problem of Jesus of Nazareth seems to be a thing of the past, the authorities find an empty tomb. And Jesus' disciples are running around telling everyone that they've seen him and touched his wounds. And we go on to read throughout the scriptures Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. He is, as our revelation reading today reminds us, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's no coincidence that um, in our liturgical year, we end today with Christ the King Sunday. After walking through last year's Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Holy Week and the, the the many, many Sundays of ordinary time, we close our year with Jesus seated as King of the Cosmos, the victor over sin and death. It is a perfect time for reflection. To ask ourselves, what does it mean to call Jesus King? That was the question before us today. What does it mean for us to call Jesus king? I'm going to give just three things to think through. Uh, Three things that it means for us if you call Jesus your king. The first is this. We are freed from the penalty of sin. We who were because of our sin objects of God's wrath have been forgiven and embraced by him because of what Jesus Christ has done. to him who loves us. Remember our reading from Revelation. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Or as we heard last week from the book of Hebrews, remember as we walked through that passage, scribbling and making notes on our bulletins. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Or as St. Paul writes to the, 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 in his letter to the Romans, since we are justified, By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if Jesus is your king, he is also your savior. The second thing is this. If Jesus is your king, you are freed from the power of sin, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. You see, for a number of reasons. One, because as St. John tells us, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or as the author of Hebrews says, that Jesus lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of God. And so when we fall, when we go astray, when we fall into error, when we fall into sin, we have an advocate who stands at the right hand, who calls our attention to him and offers his forgiveness to us. You see, if Jesus is your king, his spirit dwells in you. This is the second part of this. His Not only does he offer forgiveness, his spirit dwells in you and enables you to live Rightly before God. St. Paul said this. Sin will have no dominion over you. For you are not under law. But under grace. The power of grace. Expels the power of sin from our lives. Now the third thing is this. If Jesus is your king. You have a proper object of worship. Even in the secular world. This Thanksgiving. You see that people who do, do not even believe in God. They, they need an object towards which to guide their thanks and their adoration for, for the lives that they have. You see it all over social media, giving thanks, so grateful. Even your atheist friends are saying things like that. You see, there's something in us that, wants, that, that draws out worship and thanksgiving and wants to direct it towards, it, towards itself.